Hello and welcome to the Pint Talks podcast, where two old friends chat about the world over a pint. This episode is part one of two on gaming. Here we're going to discuss the hows, whys, the good, the bad and the ugly side of gaming. In the next episode we're going to be talking about the financials and the business side of gaming and esports. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pine Talks podcast. I'm Ray and I'm Dylan and today we're going to talk about video games. It's a fun topic for us. Um, yeah, it's like so video games are something we kind of grew up with. You know, when we were growing up in, in the 90s, it, it, there wasn't really much video games. There were some obviously, but they were kind of on the rise for the first time. Really graphics were starting to kick in, multiplayers and other like huge advancements at that time. But the industry was still pretty new and you know, our parents were like, oh, I'm just playing video games. It's just like but now they have grown so, so much. So we want to talk about them. And to start us off, I guess, you know, games seems to be very, very engaging for kids. But why, why is that? Why do you think games are such, such a big engagement, sort of a catalyst? Well, I think even beyond kids, I think, I mean, they're engaging for pretty much anyone. A 10-year-old can enjoy the same game that somebody who's in their 40s can also enjoy. And actually, I'll take you, first I'll take you back a little bit. Do you remember the first time we actually played a computer game? I did, yeah. First time was we went to, the inter- to an internet cafe and we turned on, I think it was StarCraft 1, just after it had come out. And uh, yeah, it was a big hit. And it was like, we're like, oh, wow, so amazing. Yeah. And so this was in like the second grade or something like that? I don't know. Um, I believe yeah. it was second grade or something. I think we were like 10 or something. And I think that's sort of a good representation of what kids probably see, at least initially. You know, they see all of this really cool graphics and kind of very designs that are very different from what you'd know in real life. So when you talk about kids, I'm sure that that may be part of it. Right. Well, so games have definitely been viewed, at least from the outside, as something that kids do. It's like a form of entertainment for children. I think as our generations grew older, it's kind of become now these kids are adults. And there's obviously new kids playing games too, but there's an actual full generation of people that are now in their 40s and their 50s that are still playing games that grew up with that. So games are much more like you mentioned, mainstream right now? Well, I think one of those things is that kids tend to be always the early adapters of new technologies because they kind of get used to new things faster. The other thing is games like every other medium is like always just stories, always just make-believe. It's just for kids, you know? And early games probably did not have top-of-the-notch graphics or storytelling or, you know, really deep storylines because A, the money wasn't there and B, the technology wasn't there. Right, for sure. They have grown really ways since we started playing whether it's those those early games that a lot of the time there was no multiplayer there was no the graphics were like shit <laughs> there was there was no yeah there was not a whole that richness that you see today i mean things are so much more complex today like even just learning the games today i feel like like whoa there's like there's a lot going on here there's all these customizations there's all these well, like different modes of playing it i think it really depends on the kind of game some games which have so there's games which are sort of light live services and those games basically are the same game but the developers keep on adding on content to that game in that case they have continual fan bases that they just continuously play the same game you have to have enough new developments in the game to keep people engaged so they demand even more and more and more complexity more stories more everything right 
And I think beyond that, games have a very have almost an, a universal appeal because of the way we view stories and the way we engage with things. As our world becomes more complicated, you invest in your education for 12, 15 years, you enter careers which are uncertain, you enter, you know, the world is increasingly uncertain and part of hum- of us as humans, I think we crave some sort of certainty, some kind of dedicated rules that we can just, we know we can follow and we'll get this outcome. If we don't get that from real life, games are a really good way to get that. It's kind of interesting how when we build education systems, you know, we, we kind of create these, these rules and these roles and these goals, very tangible, very specific sort of a goal, like to graduate from like high school. There's all these rules and, you know, as a student, you have these things you can do, you can't do, and it's much more structured than real world is. And to some extent, games are kind of like that too, right? They have the rules, they have sort of the, the actors inside of them, and, and there's a clear objective of what means the success state in a game or most of the time, there's clear objective, like not, not all games, but <laughs> certainly there is certain structure to it. Yeah, I wonder if, if there's some connection there of how just like kids are, you know, introduced to games very young into school that is structured very early, in an early age. Like, is that structure like making people feel better? If you, if you think about what Tony Robbins says, you know, you have six needs and one of them is uncertainty and, and you need to be challenged and the other is certainty. So you need to know that if you do A, B will happen. There's some, there needs to be some sort of predictability in, in life. So is that like for people, like he's, uh, I'm not familiar with his work uh, on that topic. So is it like people universally have these needs, like six needs to be happy? Yeah. yeah. So for you to sort of function well, he says you, need, you have, I think, five or six needs. One of them is uncertainty. So the need to be challenged and to grow. Uh, the other is certainty. And then there's one which is to feel important. And they're sort of useful to explain some kinds of human behavior, at least. So in this case, if you think of it within that frame, I mean, in a game, you're the player. You're the most important thing there. So your actions have major consequences for the world. In a game, you know that if you, you will get better as you go and you know how your choices will impact the world. It's, very, it's a controlled environment. And on the other hand, unlike maybe TV, they're not passive, they're active. In a way, they can also be more engaging than books and TV. Not maybe for everyone, but for a lot of people, they can be. For sure, yeah. No, they're, they're definitely very engaging. I mean, there's a number of ways we can go about this and studying this, but they stimulate great engagement from what I play them because of your active participation. Some people have, have called it this state of hyperarousal, where they even bring you this high doses of, of dopamine being being released as you as you receive awards, as you achieve sort of things in the game. And there's also like release of cortisol, which is sort of the, the stress hormone. So that's an interesting, also another perspective, which you, you sort of touch on, which is you can enjoy a lot of different emotions, engage on a lot of different levels with the content in a safe environment. If you want to be scared, you can go on and you can be scared on some level, knowing that there's nothing to be scared about. It's just a game. There are some games which are re- have really deep, very touching stories in them, which can really make you cry. I played Mass Effect 3, which is the last of that trilogy. And you have a few characters which die. The way they kill them and the way that they do it is like really good. Right. So the same way we can get attached to maybe a movie or a poem and, you know, we can actually translate those emotions from, the, from that medium to, to the real life. Yeah. Absolutely games affect us in that same way. In a way, even more because you actually put in time to get invested with that character. You go and you talk to them actively. Right. You, you develop sort of a, you could potentially develop a deeper connection 
and, and that's sort of both good and bad, I guess, but it is definitely powerful. I still remember in, in Mass Effect 3, this, there is this professor who you recruit in the second game, you get to know him, you get to know his motivations, you get to follow his story a little bit, you get to learn what he's like. And in the third one, he comes back. He has, in the second one, there is this song which he likes to, silly song he, which he likes to sing. And in the third one, he goes and he sacrifices himself for another, for something very thematically linked to his story. And you've seen how he has changed his opinion on the topics that he was very engaged in. And he, like, as he sacrifices, as he gives his life away, he sings this little ditty to make himself feel better. And you're there just watching it, you know, in a cinematic, in a very pretty, very stylized scene. Right. You know, I, I can't help but, but wonder about this. People usually that don't game, think of them as this sort of a shallow uh, type of content, kind of like the perception similar to like the cable TV type of thing, where it, it's sort of like you're brain dead while doing, there's just nothing to it. But I think the things that you're alluding to is, you know, it's a deeper story. I kind of think of it as more of an art form, I guess. I think of it as it has all the potential to have depth in it. Now, do are all the games deep and engaging in that way? Not necessarily, just like, you know, not all movies are very smart. Not all books are very smart. What you do with the medium matters. It's not just the medium itself would, would actually create the quality there. But yeah. games have, it seems like they have all the ingredients to be able to actually facilitate a deeper engagement and connection. There's so much depth in, some, in the best of games. It depends a lot on what you play. Games are possibly the most, the broadest of entertainment. And you can have pixelated games like Space Invaders. Or you could have super graphic, super stylized, story-driven games where gameplay is actually almost secondary. We're recording this around Christmas and my fiancé is uh, watching a lot of Christmas movies. So let me tell you this. Not all movies are very touching, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the Christmas movies. Christmas movies is one thing, but what about the Christmas songs? I'm already sick of Christmas songs like two years ago. I think that's the point of Christmas songs. You like binge on them around Christmas and then you have the whole year to recover. Absolutely. <laughs> so what, what would you say to somebody who says, oh, games are just for kids? That was, yeah, that, that was sort of the early ideas and some people are outside of it. I would say it's, it's completely wrong for sure. I'm not, I guess, in full disclosure, a very passionate gamer. I used to be when I was younger. Now I, I, I do play some games when I, when I find time. And I'm also working my, my day job as a user experience designer. Now, I'm not a game designer per se. I've released a game in the past, but uh, you know, I, I just design digital products. And so there's certainly a lot of aspects to gaming that as I think of them as a, you know, as a designer and, non, and not a game expert, I feel like they have a lot of indirect effects on people. So I think of them really as, a, as a, quite a, an advanced product, actually, that people interact with. It's one of the things we talked about already. The level of engagement is really, really high. And for example, when I think of maybe the positive effects of games beyond just kind of like killing your time, like the sort of understanding might be, Mm. you know, there's a lot to it, you know, with disengagement. um, And I I was reading in preparation for this podcast, I was reading some some data on it to to think about what are games actually scientifically proven to do. One of the authorities, I guess, on the subject, the American Psychological Association, at least in the U.S., they make recommendations about certain types of mediums and their effects on people and children and what's too much, what's too little. They talk about addictions and things like that. They have quite a few positive things to say about games in terms of you know, what they can trigger. So they can strengthen a range of uh, cognitive abilities like spatial navigation and reasoning and memory and things like that. So particularly like those, those shooter games hmm. are pretty good at that. I was, I was reading like a, a study, according to a study by, by the APA, they can also help with like developing problem-solving skills, particularly those games that are more like strategic video games or role-playing games. 
there's a lot to it. And, and I guess finally, there's this, you know, sort of the more basic aspect where you, if you play a simple game, kind of like, uh, I don't know, Angry Birds or something that's just very easy to learn, just takes maybe one or two movements. They can improve moods. They can promote relaxation, um, reduce anxiety. And, and there's studies that they cite on that, on, that, on that subject that sort of backs that data. So I would say there's quite a bit to games. I want to start with the last thing you actually talked about a little bit, uh, which was that they relax you because I, I actually can relate to that quite a bit. Sometimes I come back from work, I'm annoyed, I'm angry, I'm, or the opposite, I, I feel down, I feel, you know, downtrodden or whatever. And I come back and a lot of the time a movie or just music does not, it doesn't do the trick for me because I still, my mind still keeps on working on what has happened in the day. And if I turn on a game, because games also very, very much an engagement, like some games are more engaging than others, in some you really need to pay attention. That kind of experience really acts as a reset that my mind stops ruminating, it stops going back to the day, and oh, what happened? Oh, I could have done this, or I could have done that, or I could have said this. Like, no, that, that just stops. And my mind just goes and it, it engages with something completely different. It definitely improves mood, it definitely improves everything. If you think about some of the alternatives to games for that, there are not many. And there's alcohol, they're, they're all destructive, whereas games are passive and, in, as you mentioned, even can be constructive in some cases. No, that's interesting. I mean, as soon as you mentioned that sort of take your mind away from all the worries and uh, help you get relaxed, it really made me think of actually other activities that do that for me. But they're all, at least for me, they're all pretty much outdoors activities. When I go skiing, for example, I feel the exact same effect. I need to be so focused on the activity or like when I go skateboarding that I generally like, I don't have time to worry about anything else. I'm just completely immersed in it. And, and that makes me feel super refreshed, actually. Yeah. Like after I'm done skiing for a few hours, I'm like, whoa, like that's so, my brain was actually focused on one thing and not worrying about 30 other things. It seems like you're experiencing a similar thing with, with games. Yeah, Absolutely. And because the thing with a lot of these outdoor activities, you need to plan. I mean, most people, okay, some people, if you live in the mountains, maybe you can just go skiing. But for the majority of people, they need to go away to ski. Or maybe skateboarding is a little bit different. Um, the gym can be uh, something that, that does that for people. Like a lot of people like going running when they're annoyed. The thing about gaming for me is that it's always there. It's always available. Once you pay for the game, most games are fine. As in, you don't have to repay it doesn't depend on other factors. Like the weather doesn't matter. My, I can be injured. I can, be, like, I can always sit there and play a game. And it doesn't matter what time of day. It doesn't matter where I am so long as I have my computer. Sure, yeah. Makes them very flexible, very accessible yeah. for all kinds of contexts and all kinds of places, for sure. You can be on a flight. You can be anywhere. But yeah, I've also heard the same things that you were talking about, um, especially visual acuity and hand-to-eye coordination first-person shooters especially develop, like things like Counter-Strike or Call of Duty. The other thing being strategic thinking. Those are, the, those are the popular games, shooters, Counter-Strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's some of them, yeah. The other thing is, for example, people who play a lot of StarCraft 2, and they've used StarCraft 2 as a good game for this, they can do an insane number of actions per second. I think it was something like two or five or ten I don't know. I don't. I actually need for those for those in the audience that, that don't know what a StarCraft is. It's a strategy-based game where you control sort of your own little minions, a little world, and you build buildings. And so you have to do a lot of multitasking and kind of like managing like many things at the same time. Yeah, it's it's what you call a real-time strategy. 
So you have to A, control your forces and they have skills and that you need to activate from time to time. And at the same time, control your economy, which is completely different. The best StarCraft players can do a ton of actions and, and their brain is very agile and very acute. Yeah, I mean, that definitely coincides with the, with the studies I read around these, these strategy games. It seems like there's something there for sure beyond the killing time or, or whatever it is. I think most normies, so the general population who engage with games are maybe familiar with things like Candy Crush or maybe some shooting games and they just look kind of maybe pointless and silly to them. And a lot of that, a lot of the popular opinion, I think, comes from that. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there's definitely, yeah, that's one thing that's kind of strange about the medium is that there's such incredible variety of games that, you know, it's almost like the term games doesn't even fit it anymore. Like it's, there's so many different games. Like it's hard for me to compare a, a small, you know, mobile game that you can learn in like five seconds that you play with one finger versus a pretty complicated uh, strategy game that uh, takes, you know, has a learning curve, involves multiple other players and it has all kinds of aspects to it. Yeah. There's some games which can be very, very deep. For example, a very good recent game, which, which is sort of controversial, but we'll talk about that at a later stage, is uh, Cyberpunk 2077. Basically, you play this mercenary in, in, in the world and in this futuristic cyberpunk future, right? 20, in the year 2077. And you can go around, you can do various tasks. And depending on those tasks, people can like you or dislike you. And then depending on how much they like you, you might get more tasks or different tasks, or they might go after you. And you have a reputation with the police and you have a reputation with, there's five or six different gangs. And then you have a reputation with uh, the corporations. And then you have a reputation with all different kinds of, and depending on all of these, you get different interactions, you get different texts, you get different storylines. So it can be very varied. And it can be hundreds of hours of gameplay just in the one game. So you mentioned that there's a, a lot of games and there's very big variety and also in terms of engagement. So can you just say a few, like sort of make a, a list or something of types of games and maybe a brief description? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of different types of games. Uh, you know, there's the strategy games that I mentioned earlier where you sort of control like a bunch of little people. And uh, typically, um, you know, that's, that's one kind of strategy games. But in general, you control many moving pieces and you sometimes build things, um, but you have a lot going on and you're sort of the god or the master of it all. Yeah. Uh, then there's a first-person shooter where you generally see the world from your sort of eyes or camera view and you can shoot people. You know, there's just races or sports games, like um, you can play soccer or basketball games. Um, then there's, you know, this, this kind of like, I guess, arcade games where you have, you know, maybe you kind of, I don't know how to describe an arcade game. Uh, usually it's like a smaller, simpler game. You maybe move one character or you kind of like change the world a little bit. But, but generally you can play those games with like maybe one finger on a phone or maybe just like a mouse and two keys. So those are kind of like more, more casual games. You know, there's like fighting games. So there's like so many genres. Like yeah. any, anything else I, that I'm missing? Yeah. So I'd also add to those RPGs and MMORPGs. So RPGs role-playing game where you control a character. Usually the one character, it can be first person. So you see through your eyes or, you, or third person. So you see the, the entire person. And you go through the world, you know, gain skills, change, change your stats. And they're about character building. 
And then there's mo- multiplayer version of that, massive multiplayer, massive mo- online multiplayer, so MMO uh, versions of that, where you play with thousands of other people, which changes the dynamic of the interaction with the game. Then there's also explorer games, uh, survival games, and a few would be Subnautica, for example, or No Man's Sky, where the world you you are in a world which tries to kill you, and your goal is to survive. Uh, there's sandbox times games which don't technically have an end. They may not even have goals. They sometimes just drop you in the middle of something and you just have to do whatever you want. And there's uh, building games which focus on, or simulation games, which you can build, let's say, an entire city or you can build a house or uh, you're building a farm, like something like that. And there's also a lot of combinations. So there can be a building game with an RPG aspect, which is a simulation and a sandbox. Sure, there's, yeah. There, there's other types as well. We're just mentioning some of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. There's a wide variety for sure. Yeah. One that I uh, that's sort of interesting that I play is called Stardew Valley, and I play it when I'm very stressed. Uh, it's it's a um, simulation of a farm. So the story of the game is that you're a person who was in the rat race and you kind of give up your life and you move to your grandmother, uh, grandfather's farm and you just run the farm and you plant crops and you craft different things and you look after animals and there's uh, a little bit of a fighting. Like there's a mine with various, very silly looking monsters in it. And uh, it was, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting game. It's, it can be quite relaxing. You can also get married and even have <laughs> kids. Definitely a lot of different purposes, a lot of different goals. You know, one thing that I, that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this podcast is um, we, we listed a lot of positive effects of, of just playing a, a standard game, no matter what genre it is. So one thing that um, I kind of stumbled upon when I was preparing for this, this podcast was trying to use games sort of outside of their, their direct domain of, you know, playing games taking elements from games and putting them into the design of other things like apps or educational tools, uh, perhaps for learning. And, and I, I was kind of like thinking about this topic and I saw there, there's a few ways that people have been trying to do that. One way is that, you know, they give high school students a game and the game has some nuggets of useful information in it. Perhaps the story of the game has to do with maybe history or science and they, they actually play rich graphics game that, that has that. Uh, so that's one aspect of, that's one way of doing it. Uh, I've also seen other people doing kind of like this uh, gamification of things. Uh, I've seen education and I've also seen it for other things like fitness apps where let's say people, you come, uh, students, maybe high school students, it could be any kind of students, uh, it could be college for sure. They, they complete like an assignment and they get points for it. And maybe after they complete enough of them, they earn a badge or they gain a level. So these are things that you typically see these rewards mechanism, this growth mechanism in terms of levels are things you see in games. But um, people have been trying to take those and try to develop better habits or to, to create motivation. Yeah, can I just jump in very briefly? I've also seen this as a self-improvement program, sort of using game elements as to self-improvement. Let's say that your goal is, let's say, to lose weight. And you can talk to people and recruit people and treat people like almost characters in a game. And every time you talk to a character, you gain certain points and you can spend those points, etc. And it's all to do with trying to maybe make things a little bit easier for you in the same way. Right. Yeah. So it's all about like, yeah, making you more motivated, I guess. 
trying to take that super engagement that people get out of games and putting it somewhere else by putting game elements. But one other thing I really want to talk about is, is something that is kind of like a different approach to those. And, and those have had some success, I would say mixed success. They haven't really, you know, obviously revolutionized education. Uh, they've been applied effectively in, in certain very specific cases. One that's actually pretty cool is uh, the app called Duolingo for learning language, where they gamify the whole language learning experience. Like you get these, there's this character, there's this owl that kind of like talks to you and encourages you and kind of says, good job. You're, you know, there's like streaks. And so there's this whole thing to motivate you. And actually what I found about it, I tried to, to, to use it for a few months and it's actually quite nice when you're keeping up with things. You know, it, it really gives you like that boost and that streaks and you want to keep them. But as soon as you fall off the wagon, it's actually super annoying. It makes you feel bad. It's like, oh man, the owl's like bugging me and I keep getting notifications. I'm not doing it. So eventually you have to shut it off because you're like, oh my God, I feel so bad about this. I'm getting <laughs> depressed about this. Yeah. I have also, I, I forget the name of the app. I had a similar language app, which did something very, um, or very similar. So, and you have like aliens in different levels. And I think uh, the biggest thing for me that I found is uh, that increased my engagement was the competitive angle to it. And I think there's also some apps which are about walking or fitness, et cetera, that take advantage of the competitive level of things like, oh, here's what your friends, here's how you compare to the average score for the day. Oh, here's the weekly averages and all that stuff. And I think that can increase engagement a lot as well. Yeah. I mean, as, as human beings, we compare ourselves to others all the time. So that, mm-hmm. that kind of feeds into that sort of a feeling. So one other twist about it or different take on it in terms of taking game elements and applying them to something else, particularly education, is a tool I use as a graduate student in, in a class by a professor called Bear Fishman, and he does a lot of research in this area of gameful learning. And he built this tool called Gradecraft. And so I took his class, it was an education class, but you know, I took it as a designer and as a student, I was using this tool Gradecraft. Um, and essentially what it does is it tries to take these more, I would say deeper elements of games and try to apply them to education. One aspect of this is, and Barry and his team argue that part of what makes games great is that people have certain autonomy. You know, they, they're sort of in charge of their own world. There's rules about the world, but they, they sort of make a lot of decisions. And when you think about the traditional Western education system, we, you know, we're kind of told what to do a lot of it. Like we, we generally, we might have some choice of which classes we take depending on which country you're living in and which educational level. Generally, the higher the educational level like college and graduate school, you have more choices. And at the lower levels, like, you know, elementary, middle, like K through 12, sort of you get, you get a lot less choices. So I was taken as a graduate student with, I think they're trying to apply to college students as well, and potentially into, into even lower grades. But my experience was that Gradecraft in, in using this type of um, paradigm, it really encourages people to, to be in charge of what they're working on. So one way they do that is by providing you with more assignments then you need to get an A or to get like the top grade, uh, depending on which country you're in. But in the US, it's an A. Essentially, if you need to complete, let's say, seven assignments and, and get a decent score on them to get like the top grade A, um, maybe they give you like 12 assignments or they give you 15 assignments. That way you actually choose which assignments you take. And that gives you flexibility both in the types of assignments. So maybe you kind of develop this, uh, what they call like a micro specialization, or you can also take the types of assessments so maybe you take tests, so you actually take the more the project work. That's one aspect of the tool that it lets you really choose your things that you want to go for, and that's like a game element. 
So I am in the education system. I've taught classes on high school and especially on university level. I I know of these tools. I've heard of them, but I'm honestly kind of negative on them. I don't think that they would see widespread use or even if they do see it, that it's a good thing necessarily. Now, I'm not super knowledgeable about them, but I am sort of familiar. And the reason I would say is one is that Let's say that you, what you said, for example, what is if you need nine assignments, but you need to do 15, so you, they give you 15, but you need to do nine. I mean, then somebody has to actually write those 15. So that's a lot of work for somebody, which maybe if you're in some departments that's doable, but if you're in the hard sciences, education is actually one of probably six other activities you need to do, which are about equal or greater in, in terms of how much time they take for you. And the other aspect for me is that what we said before, which is you have all of these apps that try and gamify it. And after, if while you're trying to stay on it, they engage you. But if you fall off, it actually has the reverse effect. So you kind of get annoyed and it's, it's more depressing for you. And I think for a lot of people, like some people, some students will probably be fine. But some students would be like, they would want to complete all 15, like not only nine. So it could have also the opposite effect for some people. I think how you take it would really depend on the kind of person you are. Preschool, primary, secondary, even high school, it would be more interesting. But for tertiary education, I think because information is so abstract, a lot of the time, unless you sit down and learn it yourself and take responsibility for it, it's borderline impossible. Because it's impossible. <clears throat> well, it's impossible. You can teach one plus one is two. That's relatively a simple piece of information. You can remember that as a, as a let's say, elementary school student. But as, as, a high, as a college student or a graduate student, the type of information you need to remember is very abstract. So unless you sit down and try and understand it for yourself, like you can still remember the information, but if you don't understand it... So I don't it, understand how that's related, I guess. Like, what's the problem of having... Uh, so far, I've, I've just shared one aspect of it, having yeah, more assignments... Yeah. So how is that problematic when the information is more abstract? Well, I think it, the more abstract information, the more difficult it would be to apply game aspects to it. Oh, I see. Basically, what I'm trying to say is there's going to be a lot of work in making programs this way, but the gain I don't see as very great, it's especially the university level. Like maybe at lower levels, it may be more because of the increased engagement and more simple information. So for me, I'm kind of questioning if that kind of strategy would work on a widespread basis. Like I'm sure in some fields, it would be great. Just I'm not sure how wide it would be. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question of how much to apply that. And, you know, there's there's other aspects to it too, where they, you start with zero points and you sort of earn points for each assignment as opposed to starting with kind of like 100% and then your average goes down with each assignment that doesn't, doesn't go well. Uh, so it's kind of like it reinforces the concept of you achieving stuff with every assignment. So I'll say at least with this tool, you know, it's not necessarily super gamified or, you know, it's only more like, okay, you, you kind of choose what assignments you want to take and you earn points for each mm-hmm. and you have achievements on, on the way. It's not necessarily changing fundamentally how you learn, really. It's more on the outskirts of it, I guess. So if something is hard to learn, it's still going to be hard to learn using this tool. It's not going to make it easy to learn. Yeah, um, so but at least more, it makes you feel more in control. It's more like using 
human psychology in a like our, a better understanding of human psychology to to give you a helping hand in how you learn and to provide you with some motivation maybe right that's kind of part of it and like to make education easier or better there's so many other aspects to it right like how you actually learn these concepts and maybe i don't know there's all these kind of theories that i learned in that class you know maybe relating the problems to real world applications and things like that or uh, yeah. to something you can relate to so that def- definitely doesn't solve those but I thought it was an interesting tool that we used and for sure, for sure it worked for me for that type of class, but I think it's a good point that you're bringing up that it might not necessarily be applicable to other, other fields, other levels, and there's much work to be done probably to see a wider application of this. Yeah, a, a sort of related topic I think is the use of games that already exist or similar games to also help teach certain skills to certain people. And I'm not super knowledgeable of this, I just heard a few talks about it. But for example, using a first-person shooter, such as Counter-Strike, for example, to improve hand acuity and dexterity and to improve reaction times, which may be interesting for some of the, more, some of the newer applications like a fighter pilot. Like you have a lot of these drones which are controlled remotely. Those controls are similar to games, etc. Or just people who, for some reason, need help with either tracking of objects on a screen or more better hand-to-eye coordination. So some of this definitely sounds pretty niche. How many fighter pilots are there in the world? For sure, I can relate to the tracking objects on screen. It's it's actually a health condition I developed like last year, where I don't know why it happened, but uh, for some reason, my my brain had a hard time tracking fast-moving objects. After one day, I was at the bus, and I got out of the bus, and I was dizzy because I couldn't handle the world around me. And so... I'm, I would say I'm probably 90% <laughs> cured now, but not fully even. So sometimes I'm, I'm still aware when I see like a fast moving camera in a movie or something like that, or a lot of objects. What I had to do for that, I did a therapy where to improve my, to I guess help my brain remember how to track fast objects, I had to track fast objects. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, it was like games, uh, you know, they were not exactly the games I would normally play, but there were specific games where things were kind of moving extremely fast throughout the screen or progressively fast and as, as you kind of gain levels. And so that was actually very useful for me. And it was pretty much the only way you could consistently practice this because, you know, there's very few settings in the real life where consistently you get these fast moving objects and you can kind of like decide on the speed yourself or the number of objects yourself. Mm-hmm. So that was actually super useful. So I will tell you, basically what I heard this is there's a TED talk about it. And the woman who gave the TED talk talked about how first-person shooters specifically engage that. And the way she showed it or highlighted is uh, you have, let's say, nine yellow dots and one blue dot on the screen, and they move in sort of a random fashion. And you can follow the one dot, and then she puts two blue dots, so you can follow the two blue dots. And then at some point, at some level, you follow like five blue dots at the same time, and they're moving faster. And they've shown that people who play a lot of first-person shooters, they can follow those dots, no problem. But the regular people have no chance. So if you're very much into these kinds of games, you get a That's lot better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry? I should play some first-person shooter, first shooters in. That yeah. sounds like the thing for me because I was following a lot of dots. That's yeah. exactly what I was doing. I was following dots and I added more dots and they were faster dots and they were like moving weird dots. And yeah. <laughs> that was kind of like this, um, if you this think, character that I did. If you think sort of of the level of where you, what you're doing is you're, move, you're looking at for changes in, in the screen, right? You're looking for changes on an image. And uh, first-person shooters, A, have a high level of engagement, and B, sometimes you need to 
pay attention to five or seven enemies at the same time, which move randomly across the screen. So, and you need to have really fast reflexes to be able to shoot them, but not get shot. Uh, especially in there's a lot of battle royale or shooters like that, which are very, which, which would develop this very much. Or what's a battle royale? Oh, so battle royale, you get like 10 people and everybody can shoot everybody else. So it's whoever survives. It's sort of like People the Hunger Games. Survival shooting, right? So there's a yeah. lot going on. Yeah. Um, so that's one option. Or the other is something which is a bit more, for me, it's more engaging, which is some games which are a bit more story-driven. You get situations which are very tense and you might get enemies which kind of pop up. So it kind of has a little bit of a tense horror element to it. For me, that's even higher engagement because they need to be on my guard at all times. Yeah, so I have a similar experience to you as well. I get car sick, I get motion sick, and I, I, I have all my life. I, I'm actually now better than when I was a child. When I was a child, I couldn't even get through two hours in the bus without getting sick. And there's some games, like first and third person games can help with that, or at least help me, where if I'm playing it, sometimes I can play it first for an hour. But then as I get more into it, play it more and more, that time actually increases. So sometimes I, you can get to a point where I don't get motion sick at all. It's one of those things that you need to keep up. Like well, that's very interesting complain. because I, I should totally try playing games to, to help my condition. You know, as I said, I did a bunch of this therapy and it, it mostly got fixed, but I would say I'm still not as, as good as before. And the problem is because I got sick of the therapy eventually. You know, I, I kept doing it and, you know, it's not very engaging, but a game... Maybe I can use that as a, and I'll report back to the podcast, see in a few months if, uh, <laughs> if yeah. games have worked to help me with that for sure. We should, we should start playing some kind of first person shooter. I wanted to also talk about, you know, we, we talked about the positive things. We talked about other applications of games, but clearly there's some truth to why there's this negative reputation of games. I mean, it's, it's pretty widespread and maybe we can talk a little bit about potential negative aspects, whether they're real or myths, and you know, maybe we can dive into that a little bit, sort of the negative side of, of gaming or, or the dark side of gaming. I want to talk about addictiveness, uh, which is kind of like uh, up in my domain as a digital product designer. I'm kind of afraid the of drug creating dealer. the drug dealer. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of designers have been accused of creating addictive apps and <laughs> things like that. There's definitely some truth to it. I, w- I wanted to take a popular game, Fortnite. It's one of the most popular games. Of course, you're going to go with Fortnite. Yeah, I'm going to go with Fortnite. Uh, it's one of those Battle Royale games, uh, which is really... There's multiple modes for it, but I'm not going to go into the details of it, but one of which, a popular one, is where a bunch of people just trying to kill each other. Well, I think it actually would be interesting to say sort of a few words about it. Sure, but go it, ahead. It's a quite an interesting game. Um, it applies several... You can see that there's been a lot of exactly what you do so designing in the back of it to make it more engaging and the the business side of it is very interesting it's very this very kind of bright and colorful game with a lot of very eye-popping costumes and skins it has a building element to it and it's as you said it's a battle royale unlike a lot of games in this genre it's first of all it's third person which usually they're first person and second of all, it's very colorful. Like you can see that it's meant more for a younger audience than most of these games. And it's a lot less realistic than a lot of other games. 
Um, so by third person, you mean you see a little character that you control? Yeah, you see your character on screen. And a lot of them, let's say Call of Duty, is first person, which means you see through the eyes of your character. Yeah, so as I was uh, thinking about this topic, I kind of put it through a popular framework for addiction um, in terms of addictive design. It's called the Hooked Framework, uh, developed by Nir Eyal. And uh, he's an author. Yeah, I'm I'm sure I butchered the name, by the way, as well. He's uh, this American behavioral psychologist. What's the name again? Uh, Nir Eyal. Or E-L, I don't know how to pronounce it. E-Y-A-L is the last name. Uh, it's a great guy, but the name's hard to pronounce for me. And so he, he wrote this book called Hooked, which kind of puts it in a very sort of a simple, accessible way of, of these behavioral frameworks for how to create addictive products. He actually had a, a good blog post on his, uh, on his blog by a professor from Universidad de Palermo, uh, Patricio O'Gorman. And he talked about uh, games and, and particularly Fortnite and applying the, the hooked framework to it and sort of uh, studying what, how it actually is addictive or engaging. Uh, so certainly Fortnite has those elements of, a, I wouldn't even call it addictive, I would call it a habit-forming product. Whether that becomes an addiction or not, it's kind of like a, on a product-by-product basis. It could be with different people. It could become an addiction, which is sort of this negative habit, or it could be just mm-hmm. an engaging thing. Yeah, I'm going to walk you through this framework of how that works. So the first thing is always the trigger. Uh, a trigger can be an external trigger, which is uh, typically a, maybe a notification from another player that asks you to come and join them and play in the case of Fortnite. So external triggers are, are good starters. Um, you see those in other things like YouTube, maybe sending you a notification mm-hmm. about a video being available or something like that. What's more powerful is the internal trigger which happens over time when you associate a feeling with a certain product or a certain thing you do with it. So you're bored and you play games. That's an eternal trigger. The boredom is the trigger. As soon as you associate the game with boredom as something that remedies that or scratches that itch, then you have that internal trigger going off all the time. And those are super powerful. And Patricio argues that Fortnite definitely triggers that internal trigger in terms of seeking social connection or remedy for, for boredom. So as soon as the trigger happens, usually people start engaging with the product, in this case, Fortnite, uh, and they take what's next step, which is the action. Action is uh, essentially you accept the invitation to play the game and you start playing. You take the action to, like, like I just said, you, you, that's the scratching of the itch or the, the remedy for the pain. Uh, so that's the second phase. You need to take that action. Now, when you take the action, in order for, for habit to start forming, you need to actually receive some sort of a reward. There's some psychological work that I think started with B.F. Skinner, which is around variable rewards. A variable reward is a reward that is not the same always. Uh, an example outside of gaming is when you scroll down in your, your, in your feed on, on Facebook or on YouTube, you get different videos. You hate some of them, you love some of them, you don't know which ones you're going to get. So that variable, and in the case of Fortnite, you know, you get this variability of gameplay, like the worlds are different, the people in them are different. There's a ton of customization options. So you kind of get this variety every time you play. It's never sort of the exact same thing you get. And so getting this reward to your action is the next step in, in really forming a habit. And, and the final phase is, is the investment. And, and Fortnite does this really well, which is you invest something into making the product or the service better next time you're going to play. Customizing your character, making them do all kinds of dances and things like that, or things that I've heard about Fortnite. This is really the investment. And so having these four 
aspects of trigger action reward investment and fortnite does all four of these quite well can, can Actually, you say those slower please sure yeah so trigger like you get a notification or, or the feeling you take the action to play to you join the invitation you get the reward which is the you know you you actually get to play you have fun this is sort of the reward but you get a different world so it's a in different things every time so it's a variable reward and finally the investment where you customize your character you customize your world having those four things at play are the foundation of a habit forming product that kind of explains why fortnite is so engaging has been so successful they do pretty well all four of these things if you put them through one of these models, in this case, the hooked model, but there, there's many other models, uh, if, I, if I can be clear about this. This is just one way of looking at yeah. it. So you sort of touch on a very big discussion in the gaming community, which is happening at the moment, more on the gamers versus companies kind of level. And a lot of companies, and EA is Electronic Arts, EA, is for maybe the biggest one here which they want to develop this kind of game. So not necessarily Fortnite, not necessarily Battle Royale, but a multiplayer, massive multiplayer online game where you can, the reason, one of the reasons is you can go and engage your friends. So it's sort of like social media where one person brings in two others, which bring two others, which bring two others, et cetera, et cetera. Like a big audience is pretty relatively easy to get. The other thing is that there are continual games where you can play the same game over years and decades. The game maybe changes changes the format a little bit, maybe releases new content, new guns, new skins, new this, new that. The other thing that people like in it is beyond the high engagement and beyond the re- retention of, of uh, people, there's also these games are very microtransaction friendly. And we're going to talk about monetization later, but there's also there, these, basically to say it is these games, you can get an audience relatively easily that audience can keep itself engaged in a relatively low content pool, a few maps. Like Among Us is, is an example of this. And Among Us is a multiplayer game where you play with your friends and it's a relatively simply drawn low graphics game. It's sort of a, the video game equivalent of the game Wolf that people play, where there's one wolf and there's a bunch of people or one killer or criminal or whatever version you're familiar with and you need to find a killer before they kill everybody. You get a lot of your friends and you bring them in and you get a very big audience very quickly. And then you can continually engage that audience by releasing a new map or a new gun or a new effect or a new dance, like you said, or new customization. Well, so so novelty is definitely something that's existed for a long time where people are attracted to novelty. It makes us feel good. That's why you see that in, I guess, fashion is probably a great example of that, where we see new stuff and we want to buy it. You know, you see it with the new gadgets, with the new, I don't know, colors of apps and things like that. Like designers have been using that for a long time just because, you know, there, there's research in the area that, that shows that people are attracted to novel things without getting too deep into this. There is a certain degree to it where if something is too novel or too different, it might seem like odd or out of place. But if, if it's just right, just novel enough, it can actually create great engagement and interest from people. Yeah. For example, another game that uses this very well is called Guild Wars. And Guild Wars is a massive multiplayer role-playing game uh, online. So you play a character and, and you, know, you get access to the world. And it's also a live service. So it continuously releases new content. A lot of that content, you can buy new weapon skins. You can buy new skins of mounts. And, and that's what they, they release a lot. And let's say every few months or every month or two, they release a few new skins, making sure that you keep on playing the game. 
Yep, makes sense. Yep, old and proven strategy, and <laughs> it works. I think addiction, though, is a, is something a little bit, and I want to touch a little bit more on the definitions of addiction, because I think that may not have gone through. Which is there's very specific definitions if if you are addicted to gaming, because there's also the concept of being addicted to gaming in general, as opposed to a single game. Uh, and addiction is a normal thing, which which a lot of people struggle with. Some people are more susceptible to it than others. If you think that you, you can be addicted or you may be addicted or you may know somebody who is, there's a lot of information online or with different services that you can look up. But fundamentally and briefly, addiction also needs to have a destructive element to your life. So if you're addicted to games, that should, addiction needs to interfere with your day-to-day life. You don't want to go to school. You want to play the game. You don't want to go to work. You want to play the game. You don't want to be with your spouse or significant other or with other people, friends, whatever, you want to play the game. Like that's a, a, the point of addiction. And I've definitely seen that with Fortnite in some younger kids. When we visited people with, let's say, kids, I don't have kids, but we visited people with kids and their kids, all they do is Fortnite. For the entire two, three hours we're there, that's all they did, Fortnite. Just from the way that it's discussed and talked about, they, just my impression is that that's what a lot of they do, a lot of what they do, which can then, especially with younger kids, have more serious ramifications for for them later in life because they don't develop necessarily the social skills that they need for face to face interaction. It's a difficult topic for sure. You know, thinking about addiction, it can definitely be. We've all seen it. We've seen people play games where they. <laughs> They play too much games. They play too much of the same game. I've done it myself. Anecdotally, I've played games in the past when I was younger too much where I wanted to do other things, but you know, there was definitely some form of maladdiction. Um, when I was doing research for this podcast around addiction particularly, you know, I was looking again at the American Psychiatric Association. The research that they have currently or the position they have currently is that you know, there's no scientific consensus whether video game overuse becomes an addiction or if that's even possible. But they kind of leave the door open for changing your mind in the future. So they're not saying it does not, but all they're saying is there's not enough studies to actually conclude that. I think it's, it's something we need to really be mindful of. It's something that it's not something we should overlook, I think, as, especially as games are this virtual thing that can be that can be played in so many places around the world. Like one game can, can spread like a, like a virus almost. Mm. If I can say it in a more creepy way. Essentially, it could be, it could be super widespread. And I think it's, uh, it's a little frightening to me, you know, to be honest. Can I get addicted? Can my friends get addicted? Can my loved ones get addicted to a game? Certainly, the research is not conclusive yet, but that doesn't mean that it's not really possible. Another sort of aspect, though, that can be very dangerous is um, the gambling aspect of some games and especially games that aim at children. There's a difference between, let's say, poker online, which you engage with it and you know that it's meant to be a type of gambling, or blackjack online, or, or something like that, where it's obviously gambling, as an adult can make a decision for yourself. But there are games which implement much more subtle methods, which are even disputed if it is gambling. There's not a lot of safeguards in relation to how they're implemented. There's not maybe a lot of age-gating, and there's no limits on spending. You can end up with stories that happened last year in 2019, which were people spending, who, who may not necessarily be in the best position to make financial decisions, spending a large amount of money on a single game in a, in a very short amount of time before anybody who is responsible for them even notices that the money is gone. 
Hmm. So, but, but how is that, uh, I guess, gambling though? Where is the gambling aspect? Like when I think of gambling, I'm, you know, I'm placing a bet on something that might or might not work out for me. Well, a lot of this has to do with what some in the gaming development community have called surprise mechanics or loot boxes. And those surprise mechanics is basically that you pay, let's say, $5 for a pack of virtual cards. Those cards can then be used in the game. And you don't know what you're getting. You might get something which is really valuable. You might get nothing. And a lot of the really valuable stuff have like 0.1, to drop. In right, so here's your bet. <laughs> yeah, so you have to buy over and over and over again. It's a little bit gray if this is gambling or not. Because some games, for example, include the percentages in there. So at least you know what you're getting yourself into. But a lot of games don't. A lot of games rely on this mechanic as a core mechanic of the game. Like you get, let's say, players that you can then use that are better or worse through that mechanic. Some don't. Uh, The other thing is the, the big argument from the gaming industry is that you always get something. Like in typical gambling, you might be left with nothing. Whereas here you always get something. It's just not what you wanted. That's very questionable because if you get things that are useless to you, do you really get something? And they're virtual items. It's not like they have a monetary value outside of the game. So realistically, you get a bunch of pixels. I guess, I'm not sure if it's gambling or not. It certainly feels like it has some aspects of it. It's hard for me to classify it, but it definitely has that element of what I talked about earlier, which is the variable reward. One of the four sort of traits of an addictive product or a habit-forming product according to the hook framework. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's, that's yet another great example of how game designers are, are using these shady tactics to yeah. actually create engagement or create uh, addiction in some cases. There's definitely, it's a debate whether or not it is gambling or it isn't. And some governments have decided it is. Like Belgium has decided that a lot of loot boxes are a form of gambling. And other governments are on the fence. Like the UK is starting to think about it. And other governments have, decided, have not even looked into it. Either way, a lot of the development and the design of these games has to do with sort of enabling you. They're aimed at younger children. They make the whole payment process very easy. Like once your card is linked, it's linked and you just have to pr- press a button or two. There's no spending limits. There's nothing like that. And, and you can very much believe that that is purposeful. To sort of change gears, what are you drinking? Well, right now I'm drinking this uh, weird thing for me. It's called a, it's a hard kombucha, the flying embers. It's not bad. It's certainly not something you would serve in a pint. Uh, <laughs> it's a can, 4.5% alcohol. So it's uh, kind of a <laughs> sissy drink. <laughs> it's uh, it's not very hardcore, but it's uh, hard kombucha, everybody. It tastes, tastes pretty good, actually. Grapefruit. I like grapefruit. It's not bad. I don't think I've had hard kombucha. I'm having a sour, which is cold. I pretty much only drink drink exclusively um, craft beers, so you know that I am pretentious. Exclusively, uh, exclusively. All right. That yeah, yeah, and, and I'm I'm also yeah I'm very knowledgeable. I've been into it for like two years, so I'm basically an expert. <laughs> Not like my kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I'm drinking is a. It's called Party Jam Apricot, which is a, sour, a type of sour beer with apricot, which is it's decent. It's not bad. Um, I've had better sours, but it's, it, it's sort of higher middle range of taste. It has a, very int- a few very interesting notes. Literally never had an apricot flavored beer. 
they're they're a bit hit and miss. Some only have like smells. This one is not bad. It it has a few layered flavors. It's definitely not bad. It's by uh, a company called Hermit Trust. And before, actually, we didn't talk about drinks uh, earlier, but uh, I also had Milk Stout, which is actually pretty nice. It's from a company called Gunner's Daughter. Uh, Especially in the winter, I do like me some stouts. And this one is pretty flavorful. It's kind of very nice and smooth flavor. And it has supposedly peanut butter, which I couldn't really taste as much. But it definitely could taste like the coffee and the dark chocolate. So very rich, very nice head as well. That sounds like plentiful already. I mean, if you add peanut butter on top of it, it sounds like a yeah. I think dark chocolate and coffee are usually very very strong tastes, and peanut butter is a bit lost in there. So anyway, the last topic I wanted to talk about is sort of some of the myths about games. And honestly, the only reason I wanted to talk about that is because they drive me up the wall a lot of the time. That people usually they they're discussed by people who don't play games or don't research games and are just know that video games exist and they're played by those kids over there mm. and that, that's basically it and one is that uh, violent video games makes you become violent and the other is maybe that what you mentioned be- in the beginning that their video games are for kids and they rot your brain which maybe I, I suppose we've talked about a lot about that and that it's not does not is not necessarily true what do you think do video games make you more violent uh, absolutely no just kidding yeah <laughs> uh i i i did some i did some research actually on violence because you know a lot of games are violent you know there's so much killing and shooting in games it's a it's quite popular thing so i was looking again into american psychological association and what their take is on violence in in video games and it seems like they're rather skeptical about it there's a quote from from the president sandra shulman she basically talks about now, attributing violence to video games is not scientifically sound and draws attention away from other factors, such as history of violence, uh, which we know from research is a major predictor of future violence. So that's basically their stance. That, that's what I was able to find on the website. Essentially, violence is complicated and, you know, they don't really see the connection between really video games and causing violence, but rather history of violence is kind of like a key factor in predicting future violence. Yeah, just for um, sort of clarification... You cannot, in science in general, you cannot predict, you cannot prove a negative. So what that means is I cannot prove that something is not connected. The best you can do is say, well, there is no evidence that it is connected. No evidence doesn't mean that it isn't, but it also doesn't mean it is. It's sort of the best you can do. Right. But yeah, that research actually very much uh, aligns with what I know. Obviously, this is a peeve of mine. It really kind of pees me. And I think it's a very easy answer that a lot of, politicians and people in power go to when it comes to violence is like oh it's them video games a lot of the research that i've read over the years is that there is either almost no link or that there is no link between violence and video games and in fact i've seen some which suggest it's the opposite that video games in a way can serve as a way to express your emotion and to put your energy somewhere else other than so not somewhere destructive but somewhere that at least it's not destructive somewhere positive that's me for sure <laughs> yeah, I mean, I gotta say, when I come home pissed off from work, shooting a bunch of people in a video game doesn't feel that bad at all. I gotta say, <laughs> yeah, it's no, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> especially these games that that have very high engagement. I think can really reduce your stress response and redirect your energy. And it's something that we touched on before as well. Yeah, 
also on a different level, if you consider human history and the fact that at the moment where it may not seem like it, but we're living in some of the most peaceful times in human history nowadays, now we have video games and before we didn't, I would argue that even historically there is very little evidence. Because like, we used to kill each other in prehistorical times. We used to, one in four, so a quarter of humans used to die a violent death. I don't think we have video games now, and that's not the case at all. I don't see that argument for me personally. So is there any other myths uh, you want to talk about? Like uh, myths about video games? Yeah, so the other things I suppose we've all touched on, so we don't need to discuss them separately, which are you know, games are for kids or games are a waste of time or, and things like that. I mean, in terms of waste of time, I don't think that reading a fantasy book or, or watching, like binge watching Game of Thrones brings a whole lot of value to our life. Like, I don't see that it's any more full of value than playing the game. Right. I guess it depends what you mean by, you know, wasting of time. If you're searching for a all day and all night productivity, kind of a robotic uh, future, then yes, it's not necessarily tied to your job performance directly. But um, entertainment is, is, is very important and, you know, relaxation is very important and blowing off steam is very important. So well, in that sense, I agree. I suppose a more lighthearted last topic would be, do you think books are of greater value in terms of compared to games, to video games specifically? Hmm, yeah, something I haven't thought about. Um, well, I would say it depends on greater value to what. I would say uh, in terms of certain things like language development, I think books are great. You know, you just reading in a language, whether it's your native language or your maybe second or third language, I think books are generally a great medium for that. So I would say if you're trying to develop language, books are absolutely much better. Are they overall better? I like that in the books so you can actually... I would say they both kind of have these aspects where books are great because you kind of imagine the world as you want it yourself. And games are great because they present with a new world that maybe you couldn't imagine or you wouldn't have imagined exactly like that. So I would say they're just very different in terms of how you interact with them. So my recommendation is to try them both. You know, I think they both enrich you in certain ways and among other things as well. So have a rich life, have rich experiences. And then you'll probably be the most uh, enriched. Rich person. <laughs> you'll be rich, David. <laughs> or you'll be poor with all the money you've spent on all those books and all those games. I suppose if I were to conclude, I'd say, you're right. And I, I hadn't quite thought about books for language development specifically, but yeah, they're, they're very good. But for me in general, I think books, especially some of the fiction books, are on par with a lot of games in terms of storytelling, story complexity, but games can be more engaging for me. Yeah, there's, there's different places. There are different types of medium in a way. They're both entertainment, but they're, they have different roles. Maybe having a mixed diet of entertainment would be best for everyone. I think this is where we can conclude and we can say, look out, this is part one of a two-part sort of podcast where we're going to be talking about gaming, but we're going to look at more the business side of gaming and types of monetization. We're also going to be talking about esports, so you're interested in that, and you're interested to hear some more um, issues in modern gaming. Stay tuned. That will be that will be coming up shortly. 
Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate us, like, and share. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are at Pine Talks. From the whole Pine Talks team, we hope you have an awesome day.